The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I'm going to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. Now, in our last two studies of John, we been finishing up the eighth chapter. And in one of the messages we talked about Satan, and the next week we talked about demons. And so what I want to do this morning is try to give you an overview of divine beings in the Bible. I want to kind of give you a snapshot of what the Bible teaches about these divine beings called Satan, Watchers, Nephilim, demons, and try to put it all together so we can see a picture. We've talked about this for a while, for I guess the last three years now we've been <laughs> bringing this up here and there. Um, so I, I just kind of wanted to put it all together, and as I was finishing up John chapter 8, I thought, you know, I want to just kind of expand on this. So that's, that's what we're going to do this morning. So let's start at the beginning, all right? In the far reaches of eternity past, Yahweh always existed. I can't think about that too long because I can't comprehend it, okay? But God, Yahweh was always there. The eternal God of the Bible has always existed and He always will. Psalm 90 verse 2 says, Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Alright? Now, as El Olam... Yahweh is known as the everlasting God. Now, the Hebrew name Olam, translated here everlasting, means forever, perpetual, old, ancient, implying that there is an infinite future and past. Now, the principles of the laws of nature and the beginning of time and the first existence of this world are all the result of Yahweh. The Creator who possesses never-ending wisdom and power. He was before all time and all worlds. So, we have Yahweh existing from all eternity. And when I say Yahweh, I'm talking about the Divine Trinity. Alright, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Then at a point in time, Yahweh created other gods. Lesser gods and angels to be part of His family Part of His divine counsel. Now Christ, who is Yahweh incarnate, is said to have created everything, including other gods. Look at Colossians 1.16. For by Him, referring to Christ, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth. Okay, notice the division there, heavens and earth, visible and invisible. Alright, visible being earthly, invisible being heavenly. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers, authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. Now the phrase all things here occurs six times in Colossians 1, 15-20. And it literally means the all or the totality, referring to creation. Yeshua designed all creation, visible, that's earthly kingdoms and empires, and invisible. And this is a reference to divine principalities and powers. And the words here, thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities, I believe refers to spirit beings, not to human government. Human governments are visible. These are invisible. 
In part, this refers to the hierarchy of spiritual beings. So who are these rulers? Who are these powers that are in the heavens that are invisible? Well, I believe this is a reference to the divine beings who were once part of Yahweh's divine council. Now, the idea of, divine, of a divine council, I think, sounds strange to a lot of people. Because most Christians simply hold to this view that God is ruling, Satan's opposing Him, and that's all you got. Yahweh is a good deity, Satan's a bad deity. But in the Hebrew Bible, we are taught of a divine council, a ruling body consisting of Yahweh as the supreme monarch, and various supernatural attendants. All of the ancient Mediterranean cultures had some conception of a divine council. But the Hebrew Bible describes a divine council under the authority of Yahweh. See, the, the, and the other councils, the various gods are fighting, trying to take supremacy, and they're beating each other, and you don't see this in the Israelite divine council. Okay, Yahweh rules, everyone else is under Him. And while the divine council of Israel and its neighbors share significant features, the divine council of, of the Israelite religion was distinct in many important ways. Yahweh is a unique God. But he's not alone. Now, the idea of a pantheon of gods is in a heavenly council is witnessed to by various literary genres of the Hebrew Bible. We see it in historical passages, in narratives, in poetic passages, in prophetic visions. We see it in temple liturgy. We see it in apocalyptic visions. It also transcends the historical timeline from the earliest primeval history to the final eschatological frontier. The concept and imagery of the divine councils woven throughout the pages of the Hebrew Bible. Now, Glenn read Psalm 82. About six months before Jeff preached that message that changed everything around here, a friend wrote me and said, what do you think, what do you believe about the divine council? And I was like, I don't believe anything about it. Never heard about it. Well, you know, give me a scripture. And so he wrote back and he sent, he said, Psalm 82. So I went and I read Psalm 82 and I'm like, nothing there. I didn't see anything there. Because I read it from the New American Standard, which Glenn read, and it reads very differently. Alright, Psalm 82 says, A Psalm of Asaph, God has taken His place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, He holds judgment. Now, council here is the Hebrew word adah, and it means a stated assemblage, a concourse, generally a family. The term divine council is used by Hebrew Bible scholars to refer to the heavenly host, the pantheon of divine beings who administer the affairs of the cosmos. Now, it is the consensus among A&E scholars that every society from the time of the ancient Sumerians to the time of the Babylonians and the Greeks believed in a pantheon of gods. Now, notice it says here, God has taken His place. He is in the midst of the gods. He holds judgment. This psalm is a judgment psalm. And it's basically saying God is going to judge these other gods because they're not ruling faithfully. And it said the word God here and gods are both from the Hebrew Elohim. But if you notice the King of the New American Standard translates the second God as rulers. Why would they would do that? I don't know. Okay? Because they translate Elohim as God. 
You know, later on in the, in the text, he says, you are all gods, Elohim again, but I'm going to judge you like men. You're going to die like men. All right. So, you know, if you look at this in a, many translations, you don't get it because the translations are bad. All right. And they don't translate it. They don't translate Elohim as it should be translated. So that's a problem. All right. This is speaking of the divine council, the gods in the council, or the watchers, as Daniel calls them. Now, we don't know at what point in time Yahweh created these other gods. This is a psalm about their judgment, because they weren't ruling faithfully. But we don't know when He created them. But we do know that these gods were there when God created the world. We see that in Job 38. He's talking... Yahweh's talking to Job here. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who said it's measurements? Since you know, that's sarcasm, okay? God's using sarcasm here. Job, obviously you know all this stuff. You're so smart. Yeah, that, Garrett has a good reason to be sarcastic. There's, yeah. <laughs> or who stretched the line on it? Or what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Now here, morning stars and sons of God are names of divine beings. They are members of the council. Now some folks argue that sons of God in the Bible refers to humans. Tell me how that fits in this text. What humans were there when God created the world rejoicing and singing together? First of all, Elohim is never used of a human. Okay, It's used of divine beings. So before the creation of the earth and man, you have Yahweh and you have these other lesser created beings, divine beings, that make up the divine council. Alright? So this is, Yahweh's alone. Some point he creates gods. Now he's created a world. The gods were there worshiping when he created it. Then we get to Genesis and we learn that the first man, Adam, was created by God and brought into Eden. Okay, yes, I said the first man, Adam, because I believe Adam was the first man. Alright, now there's a group within preterism and outside of preterism too, that they don't believe Adam was the first created being. They believe there's a lot of people here running around the globe that God totally ignored, had nothing to do with, and all of a sudden he decided to have something to do with somebody, so he created Adam. Now, I was reading yesterday an article on BioLogos that was entitled, Adam is Israel. And in the article, they sought to defend the view that Adam was not the first man. Okay? The article states this. After Cain kills Abel, he is afraid of a posse coming after him, which casually presumes the existence of other people. (coughs) Yeah, there was other people. Some have solved this problem by saying that Adam and Eve had a lot more children that Genesis simply neglects to mention And so Cain married his sister. See, that's the view. That's how some people explain. There's other people around. Well, they married their sister. They had children. They just kept going from there. All right, the article goes on. I suppose if one must, one can take refuge in this explanation. But this scenario seems a bit desperate. I'm not sure why it's desperate. Not to mention uncomfortable. And it's not uncomfortable to me at all. Okay? Not not the least bit. Plus, this explanation is completely made up. Really? Just made up out of the blue? And then he says this, Genesis neither says nor hints that the residents of Nod are Adam and Eve's offspring. They're just there. 
That's true. It doesn't say they're Adam and Eve's offspring. It doesn't say they're not Adam and Eve's offspring. So this is an argument from silence, okay? And the Bible doesn't say that Cain married his sister. But there are texts that do say that. For example, the book of Jubilees. Jubilees 4.1. Alright, now Jubilees is a pseudepigraphal work. Alright? This was the literature of the second temple period. The temple in which Yeshua walked the earth, the apostles walked the earth, the writers of the Bible were influenced by this writing, the pseudepigraphal writings. I put no stock in any of these until three years ago. And I began to read and began to study and I began to understand this is the setting of the Bible. Alright? This is the context of Scripture. Because the writers of Scriptures knew these works and wrote, actually, quoted these works in time. Well, Jubilee says this, And in the third week, in the second Jubilee, she gave birth to Cain, speaking of Eve. And in the fourth, she gave birth to Abel. And in the fifth, she gave birth to Awan. That's a girl. Okay? Later in the same chapter, in the book of Jubilees, it tells us this, And Cain took Awan, his sister, to be his wife. And she bore him Enoch at the close of the fourth jubilee. Alright, so this is a, a literature that the writers of Scripture were familiar with. This was in their minds as they wrote the New Testament. And according to jubilees, both Cain and Seth married their sisters. Now the problem that people have with the Bible is like, well, it's, well, they, they had these kids and the next thing you know there's other people. Well, the Bible's not, you know, laid out chronologically in the sense he'd give you a timeline there. How much time took place? These people lived a long time. They could have a lot of children in all those times. And their children having children and children and children and children and all the, you know, there's a lot of people. Anyway, this is the context. So it wasn't, it's not just made up, okay, to say that Adam is the first man. And it's not unfeasible, I think. I think the, the pseudepigraphal literature bears witness to this. Alright. As a side note, okay? I had to throw that out because I read that article yesterday. So in Genesis, we learn that the first man, Adam, was created by God and brought into Eden. He was created outside Eden. Jubilee says he lived outside Eden 40 days. And he brought in to Eden, the Garden of God, to fellowship with God. He was brought into the cosmic mountain, the dwelling place of Yahweh. The Garden of Eden was God's temple. It was God's dwelling place. That's where He met with divine counsel. That's where He lived. It was His house. So Adam's brought into the garden. He's brought into an intimate relationship, not only with Yahweh, but with these other members. They walked with God. They dwelt in His presence. And you know what happens next, right? Man is tempted. And he sins. Well, the book of Jubilees says that Adam was in the garden for seven years before he sinned. I like that. When I read that, I'm like, because the Bible makes it sound like the next day, doesn't it? Here's it, he's created, and the next day he doesn't, I'm like, dang, he sure didn't last too long. But I mean, because it doesn't tell us, we don't understand the timeline. And so Jubilee says, you know, he was there fellowshipping with God, walking with God seven years. And Adam lived for a long, long time. Noah was alive with Adam. They probably shared stories. How did Noah have such an intimate relationship with God? Well, Adam had walked with him. Probably shared a lot of stuff. 
So what caused man to sin? Well, the text says that a serpent came along and tempted Eve. And Revelation 12.9 tells us that the serpent was Satan. They weren't tempted by a snake. I think Genesis 3, we see one of the sons of God. He was a watcher. He was a divine council member. And he, he was jealous, so he tempted Eve because he wanted to get Adam and Eve, human beings, kicked out of this garden. God made man vice-regent. And I don't think some of the watchers were all too happy with that. Look at Genesis 3.1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which Yahweh Elohim had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has Elohim said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. So we see here that it was a serpent who tempted them. And like I said, I, I think this is a divine being. It's not an animal. It's not a member of the animal kingdom. It's a divine council member. And he chose to oppose Yahweh's plan for humanity. See, God wanted humanity to be in fellowship with Him. They opposed this. They wanted them kicked out. So he figures if I get them to disobey Yahweh, Yahweh will kill them or kick them out anyway. They'll be removed from the garden. And that will be, we'll be happy with that. That'll be good. Now, serpent here is from the Hebrew word nakash, which according to Hebrew scholar Michael Heiser is most likely a triple entendre which is a word or phrase that has three different meanings at one time. The root of nakash is nun het shin, which is the basis of a noun, a verb, and an adjective in Hebrew. If you take nakash pointing to the noun, the word here would mean serpent. That's a valid translation, but you have to keep in mind serpent's not a snake. It's a member of the divine council. If you take it as a verb, it means deceiver or diviner. So nakash could imply a deceiver. That option fits the story. As an adjective, it would be bronze or shining one. In our text here, it's ha-nakash, the shining one. And luminosity is a characteristic of divine beings in the Hebrew Bible and in A&E text. Luminosity is not a characteristic of an animal or a man. This is a divine being. It's not an animal. It's not a man. I don't think Eve would have had a conversation with a snake, but it's simple to understand her having a conversation with a divine being. They've been living in the garden with these divine beings. And so she's like having this conversation and they're saying, did God really tell you that? Ah, he, he's trying to hold out on you. So what we have in Genesis 3 is a divine being, a throne room guardian, a seraph, a serpentine being, part of the divine council, and he wants to deceive humanity to get rid of him. He wants humans removed from Eden, from Yahweh's council and family. Why? Why does he want them out of there? He wants man kicked out of the garden. I think it's pride or jealousy, I think the Scripture hints at. The pseudepigraphal work called The Life of Adam and Eve elaborates on the motive of the role of Satan in the fall of humankind. In chapter 16, it says this, And the Lord God was angry with me, that's Satan there, and banished me from and my angels from our glory. That's Their glory is their presence dwelling in heaven with Yahweh in the divine council. And on your account, we were expelled from our abodes into this world and hurled to the ground. Straight away, we were overcome with grief since we had been robbed of such great glory. And we were grieved when we saw you in such joy and luxury. And with guile, I cheated your wife and through her action caused you to be expelled from your joy and luxury as I have been driven out of my glory. Now, in First Enoch, the temptation of Eve is attributed to Gadriel. Here it's attributed to Satan. 
And the link between Satan and the serpent is also attested in the book of Life and Adam and Eve, chapter 33, and in 2 Enoch 31. Both texts state that it was the devil who led Eve astray. The life of Adam and Eve, chapter 33, says this, Moreover, the Lord God gave us two angels to guard us. The hour came when the angels had ascended to worship in the sight of God. Immediately the enemy, the devil, found an opportunity while the angels were absent, and the devil led your mother astray to eat the unlawful and forbidden tree, and she ate and gave to me. (coughs) Now, so the divine being was jealous of man. So he got him to sin, so Yahweh would kick him out. Now, there are parallels between Genesis 3 and Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. We talked about those passages before. The passages in Isaiah and Ezekiel are about, now this is really important you understand it, these passages are about evil tyrant kings. King of Tyre, King of Babylon. That's what those texts are about. But they're put in a story about a divine being who fell from paradise. In other words, this the ruler of Tyre, the ruler of Babylon, you're just like the fallen one. And so he uses this as a backstory. The being talked about in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 was in Eden. He was a member of the divine council. I think that's clear from the text. This being tempts man, man sins, he falls, and he's removed from Yahweh's temple. He is put out of the garden. Now, to most Christians, this event in Genesis 3 is the sole reason that man is messed up, that there's evil in the world today. Right? I mean, you talk to anybody, why is man so messed up? Just look at the news. Why are man so messed up? It's the fall. They go to Genesis 3. But to a second temple Hebrew, someone who lived in Yeshua's day, let's go talk to them. This was only one of three events that caused man to be sinful. To them, the event in Genesis 3 was really low on the list. All right? Let me give you a quote from Michael Heiser, who is a scholar. And and I don't use that term scholar for anybody, okay? Heiser is a scholar. He's got a PhD in Hebrew Bible and ancient Semitic languages. Heiser says this, and to me, this quote is so powerful. All right? He says, 99% of Second Temple Judaism believe the reason wickedness so permeates the earth is not just an extension and is in large part not even linked to what happened to Adam and Eve, but the reason that people are always universally thoroughly wicked was because of what the watchers did. Now he says 99% of Second Temple Judaism. Now what he's doing is he's saying the literature of Second Temple Judaism. Take all the literature and it's there's a lot of it. Look through all of it and you're going to find out that almost every reference to man's evil is because of what the watchers did. He goes on to say, everybody in Paul's circle, everybody in Second Temple Judaism, with the exception of four intertestamental references <coughs> in intertestamental literature, everything says that the reason for the proliferation of evil is the sin of the watchers. Everything. People, that is really strong. The reason it's strong is because this literature is the context of the Bible. We always talk about, you got to keep the Bible in context. It's not just chapter you got to keep in context. It's not just book. It's the culture the Bible came out of. The people who wrote the Bible, this was their belief system. This literature 
was what they knew and understand. So this, you know, for people today to say, you know, you know, they look at the Genesis six passage and go, oh, those weren't those weren't spirit beings; those are just men. And, and some people today they want to do away with any kind of spirit being. You've removed the Bible from its context. That's what you've done. Now, before we look at the sin of the watchers, notice Yahweh's promise right after the fall of Adam and Eve. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Talking to the serpent here. He's talking to the Nakash. And between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you on the head, you shall bruise him on the heel. Eve's seed, a human being, will come. And this human being is going to fix what Adam has done. A deliverer was to come. Now, it is my understanding that the gods understood this promise. A coming redeemer would be human. So, we got man kicked out, but God's going to fix this. So, we got to stop it. So, the God's next strategic move was an attempt to destroy the human race by genetically corrupting the human line so that the Messiah could not come through it. And I think we see this in Genesis chapter 6. Now, it came about when men began to multiply in the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, and the sons of God... Bene Elohim, this is used to divine beings every time you see it in the scripture. Saw the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whoever they chose. Then Yahweh said, my spirit shall not always strive with man forever. In other words, this is sickening. I got to deal with this. Because he also is flesh, nevertheless his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards. When the sons of God, but Elohim, came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Now, sons of God, but Elohim, in verse 2 and 4, are rebellious divine beings from God's heavenly host called watchers. They have taken the form of human-like creatures, and these gods married women of the human race, be it Canaanites or Sethites, all right? And a lot of people take this passage and they say, well, this means that they married in the line of... Listen, the offspring of this race is what? Nephilim. And Nephilim are mighty men who are old men. Nephilim are giants. So if you've got kings marrying these women and they're producing giants, the only way you get giants out of this is if you have gods marrying women. I really believe that all the mythology comes from reality. These are basically the titans, alright? This is what, you know, this, this is a play on this. All these myths come from the reality of what the Bible teaches. So this hybrid offspring, this abominable union, was the giants called Nephilim. <clears throat> the Nephilim, those who were mighty men, or men of old, men of renown. Now, Nephilim were giants, there's a lot of argument about how big they were. I've heard, you know, from 40 feet to 9 feet, okay? They were big, though, all right? And they established themselves as men of renown for their physical power and their military might. <clears throat> now, the meaning of the biblical word Nephilim has been a source of unending controversy through church history. And the word is really not translated in English. It's transliterated because they just don't know what to do with it. There's no really no agreement on its original meaning. 
And word studies have produced numerous suggestions for the meaning of the term. The biblical definition of this word comes from its only other use in Scripture, and that's in Numbers 13. There also, we saw, the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, are part of the Nephilim. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and we were in their sight. Now, why would these Nephilim make them seem like grasshoppers? Because they were really big. Okay? They were giants. They were superhumans. And they were invading the earth. So you have this, the watchers mate with women. They produce these giants who now roam the earth and who are just wreaking havoc on the earth. All right, the two passages quoted above, Genesis 6, Numbers 13, the only two places in the Bible where the Hebrew word Nephilim is used. But what we have to understand is that it's not the only place Nephilim are talked about in Scripture. Nephilim has a theological thread that begins in Genesis 6 and runs all the way through to the New Testament. So what does the Hebrew word Nephilim mean? Well, some scholars looking at the root word claim it means fallen ones. Nafal. That's the Hebrew word. Nafal. To fall. But there's a problem, and that is that the Septuagint, which is sometimes quoted by the New Testament, the writers of the New Testament often quote the Septuagint, and they quote it as authoritative. The Septuagint translates this word as giant. Now, we have to ask, did those ancient Hellenized Jews not know the true meaning of the word? So they just threw giants in there? Or do they know something we don't? Most all of the ancient Jewish sources, the pseudepigrapha, Second Temple literature, they translate this word as giant. For example, Jubilees 5.1. And when the children of men began to multiply in the face of the earth, see if this sounds familiar to you, the daughters were born to them, that the angels of the Lord saw, and they were good to look at. And they took wives for themselves from all whom they chose, and they bore children with them, and they were the giants. Alright, so here's Jubilee quoting Genesis 6, and it says they were giants. Enoch says the flood was sent because of the watchers. The voluntary sexual transgressions, and that's, these women were not raped, these women married these gods, and produced a hybrid, half-man, half-god. And because of their voluntary sexual transgression with the watchers, this is a violation of heaven and earth, alright? Humans are supposed to mate with humans, and gods don't mate, okay? So the humans shared the blame. But the wickedness of man was their sexual union with the watchers. And I believe this is what brought on the flood. They've gotten so wicked, they're, they're marrying, they're mating with gods. They're producing this hybrid offspring, these Nephilim. The Nephilim, they're also called Raphim in the Tanakh. They're in the land when Abraham came to the promised land. And they represent an attempt on the part of demonic powers to derail the divine program of bringing a Redeemer into the world. So they say, we're going to corrupt the human race and Messiah can't come. Now, if one of the main purposes of the flood was to wipe out the hybrid race, why do we find giants afterwards? And in Enoch, the literature tells us that it was to wipe out this race. But you get to the other side and guess what? There they are again. How'd they get there? What happened? Well, yeah. <laughs> okay, you know. There's all kinds of stories. There's um, 
How many of you saw the movie Noah? Okay. <laughs> well, you know, this guy hijacks on the ark, right? Well, I don't think that was the story. But, there, you know, some people say that Noah's daughter, his son's wives, his daughter-in-law is one of his, they were hybrid. Okay. And so when they got out, they just married and they they went on with that. Well, that there's a, there's a lot of reasons, a lot of explanations that people come up with how you get them on the other side of the flood. But let's just look at the text, all right? The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, watch, and also afterward, in the days of the flood and after the flood. All right? This is referring to after the flood. Now, the Hebrew verb, bo, translated here, came in. Bo is a euphemism for sexual relations, all right? When the sons of God came into the daughters, they had sex with the daughters of women, all right? The verb is in the imperfect form, which denotes uncompleted, ongoing action. And the ensuing verb here, bore children, is in a construction known as narrative sequence, meaning it carries the same action as the preceding verb. So this answers the question, how do we get giants after the flood? The grammar indicates that the activity that created the giants was ongoing. It happened before, it happened after the flood. In other words, this heavenly incursion of these gods coming down and mating with women seems to have happened before the flood and after the flood. Whenever I encourage someone to read the Bible, a Christian who's been a Christian for a long time, they never read the Bible, so you encourage them to read the Bible, I always get the same response. Wow, God is really mean. They see that, you know, they never read this stuff before, so they're reading and God's going, go in and kill them. Kill the babies, kill the children, kill everybody, wipe them all out. And they're like, what's happening there? You know what's happening? God is trying to wipe out, to destroy this hybrid race. That's why they got to kill them all. They got to cut this race out of the human race. Now, the Enochian texts of the intertestamental period and the New Testament tell us that these watchers did two things to disrupt God's plan. Number one, they raised up a seed to corrupt and oppose. In other words, they tried to, you know, corrupt the bloodline. All right. Secondly, they helped humanity destroy themselves. In other words, these watchers came and they taught humans things humans shouldn't know. All right. To corrupt them. <clears throat> First Enoch 7, 1 through 6 says, And all others together with them took upon themselves wives, and each one chose for himself one, and they began to go into them and to defile themselves with them. And they taught them charms and enchantments and the cutting of roots and made them acquired with plants and they became pregnant. So they're teaching them these things that these gods know that man's not supposed to know. And they bear great giants whose height was 3,000 eels. I have no idea how tall that is, but who consumed all the acquisition of men. In other words, these men, the men are trying to take care of these giants now because they're ruling because they're so big. But they just can't. They can no longer sustain them. The giants turned against them and devoured mankind. And they began to sin against birds and beasts and reptiles and fish. And to devour one another's flesh and to drink blood. Then the earth laid acquisition against the lawless ones. So these watchers corrupted mankind. They taught them all kinds of evil. And that's why Second Temple literature says the reason man is evil is because of what the watchers did. They taught them technologies. They seduced them into aberrant sexual relations. They taught them things men weren't supposed to know. They helped humanity in the path of destruction. Alright. So we got Satan corrupting man in the garden. Let's get him out of here. We don't want them to fellowship with us. Get him out. And then you got the watchers. 
you come along because God made a promise. The Redeemer's going to come. So they said, we'll corrupt that gene pool and with these hybrid beings. And then you have the Nephilim, who are children of the watchers and women. What about demons? Where do the demons come from? You know this, so. Where do they come from? Alright, the demons come from dead Nephilim. Nephilim are half man, half God. When the man part dies, the God part lives on, they are now demons. Alright? Many theologians and Bible experts have traditionally taught that demons are fallen angels. Right? The Bible never offers that. The Bible doesn't teach that they're fallen angels. It doesn't really give us an explanation where demons come from. What the New Testament refers to as demons, Jewish texts, in between the Testaments, they have a very clear answer for. And it says that's the demons are the disembodied spirits of the dead Nephilim from Genesis 6, 1-4. So demons are second generation divine beings. First Enoch says this, 15, 8-10. And now the giants who are produced from the spirits and flesh shall be called evil spirits upon the earth. And on the earth shall be their dwelling. Evil spirits have proceeded from their bodies. They died. We got these evil spirits. Because they are born from men and from holy watchers. So they're half men, half God. In the beginning and primal origin, they shall be evil spirits on the earth and evil spirits they shall be called. So these spirits that were once in bodily form in the Nephilim are again trying to seek a body. And that's why we have all this demon possession in the New Testament. We had a body, we want a body. So they're possessing individuals. And these demons are wreaking havoc on the earth. We see this in the New Testament. Alright? And I think it's because Revelation talks about the bottomless pit is opened up and you see this, you know, coming out. I think the demons are coming out. God had imprisoned them. And now they're coming out and the watchers are coming out and now we wreak havoc on the earth in the time of our Lord. And this battle is intense during our Lord's time. During the transition period. Enoch 15 says, And the spirits of the giants afflict, oppress, destroy, attack, do battle, and work destruction on the earth, and they cause trouble. They take no food, but nevertheless hunger and thirst, and cause offenses. And these spirits shall rise up against the children of men, and against the women, because they have proceeded from them. And at the death of the giants, spirits will go out, and shall destroy without incurring judgment. Now what we need to understand, and I've said it before, but let me say it again, this second temple literature is the context of the New Testament. New Testament writers quote it. They allude to it over and over. All the biblical writers were familiar and inspired by this text. This was their literature. The context of the Bible is the people who produced it. And it was produced during the Second Temple time. So when we read the New Testament, we have to consider, we have to see it like a first century Jew would. And the only way we're going to do that is know what they thought. Because our problem is we take the Bible and we open it up and we say, sun, moon, stars. I know what sun is. I know what moon is. I know what stars is. I know what that means. No, you don't have a clue. Because you have to understand what they thought it meant. Because it was written by them for them. And until you get that context, you don't understand things. The con, you know, again, we stress this, context is king, but you have to understand the context of the Bible is the Second Temple Judaism. 
We've got to have their supernatural worldview in our heads when we read Scripture. Now, from the writings of Second Temple period, we see that they believed that the reason that wickedness so permeates the earth was a result of three incidents, okay? It was a result of the fall of Adam and Eve. That was played a minor role in their, their thought process. The biggest one was the sin of the watchers in Genesis 6. What other event did they attribute? The Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. Because of Genesis 3, men fell. Genesis 6, men are corrupted and they go further into disobedience against Yahweh. And in Genesis 11, it reaches the summit at the Tower of Babel. Alright, this is a ziggurat they're building. They're building this thing to reach the heavens, to bring God down. Well, in Genesis 10, we have what's called the Table of Nations. And Yahweh divides up Noah's descendants into 70 different nations. You read Genesis 10, you got 70 nations. He's dividing us up. This is recorded in Genesis 10.32. These are the families of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, by their nations. And out of these, the nations were separated on the earth after the flood. All right, so at the Tower of Babel, God separated these nations. Well, it's important to note that Israel is not listed in the table of nations in Genesis 10. Why is that? They did not exist. Okay? So you can't list them in that table because they're not there. Alright? It didn't exist at that time. What happens at Babel? Alright, we've got the fall. Then we've got Genesis 6, the incursion by the watchers. We've got Nephilim on the earth now. We've got evil spirits. And so we get to Babel, and they're trying to build this cigarette, and God is just so over man. Alright? I've done all I can. I reach out to them. I teach them. I send people to teach them the ways of God, you know. And they just, they're not getting it. They just keep turning away from God. They keep doing their own thing. So God says, that's it. I'm done. I had enough. I'm taking all you people and I'm, I'm leaving. I'm not your God anymore. I'm going to give you other gods. Lesser gods. So he divided them up and he put gods over each of the 70 nations. And they were to worship these lesser gods because Yahweh's done with them. But these lesser gods were to rule in Yahweh's stead. They were to rule with righteousness and justice. And that's what Psalms 82 is about. These gods were not ruling righteously. So he says, I'm going to judge you. What's really cool is the last verse in that psalm. The psalmist kind of takes over and he says, Arise, O God. And the word arise there from the Septuagint is the word for resurrection. So, resurrect, O God, the God of this psalm who is Yeshua. And judge the nations. And with the resurrection, when He came out of that grave, that's it for them. They're done. Judgment comes. So man continues to reject Yahweh and he serves these other gods, so Yahweh gives them up. And what, ha- what happens in Genesis 10 and 11 is explained in Deuteronomy 32. But this is another text. If you got the wrong translation, you're not going to see it. When the Most High gave the nations, that's Genesis 10, their inheritance. He took the nations. Here's your inheritance. Here's the land that belongs to you. When He divided mankind, He separated them up, 70 different ones, of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. 
Here we see that Yahweh is responsible for the creation and placement of the nations. In fact, variations of the same Hebrew root, the word parad here, divided, are used in both Genesis 10.32 and Deuteronomy 32. He separated, he divided these. And the idea that the separation of mankind into 70 nations at the Tower of Babel was by and for the sons of God is supported in the ancient book of Jasser. You've heard of the book of Jasser? You should have heard of it because the Bible talks about Jasser. It's mentioned in Joshua 10.13. It says, is it not written in the book of Jasser? And in 2 Samuel 1.18, it says, it is written in the book of Jasser. Let me tell you what. Let me make you a promise. If you read the book of Jasser, you will be encouraged. You will smile. You will be like, wow. It's about Genesis and Exodus, but it, and it, oftentimes it just quotes directly from there, but it fills in the backstory. Okay? And you will be amazed at some of the things, you know, that are in there that are like, wow. One of the things it says that I kind of thought was really encouraging, because you always heard that, you know, God got done with these nations, He put them away, and then in Genesis 12, He chose Abraham. And you know, everyone says, well, Abraham was a pagan moon worshiper and God chose him. That's not what Jasser says. Jasser says that Abraham loved Yahweh from the time he was three years old upward. His father was a pagan moon worshiper. And in the book of Jasser, he's going at it with his father and he's tearing up his father's idols and tearing them down. You shouldn't be doing this stuff, dad. And it's really cool, you know. And here's a man who loves God. And so God's gun with him all. He says, okay, I'm going to start over. I'm taking you, Abraham. Starting the whole thing over. You'll be my people. Though all those other nations, they got their gods. I'm Israel's God. And that's why throughout the whole Bible, Yahweh, it says, the God of Israel. Why do you have to keep saying that? You're the only God there is. No, I'm not. There's a lot of other gods and they rule those nations. Those nations serve those gods. And that's why you read, you know, well, let's go out and fight them because their God's a God of the valley and we'll, we'll fight them in the mountains and we'll win. Well, see, Yahweh's not like that, okay? Yahweh's the God over everything. Alright? So let's look at the book of Jasser here for a second. And they built a tower in the city and they did this thing daily until many days and years were elapsed. And God said to the 70 angels who stood foremost before him, to those who were near to him, saying, Come, let us descend and confuse their tongues. So this is God speaking with the divine counsel. That one man shall not understand the language of his neighbor, and they did so unto them. So they divided them up. They took the 70 gods over each, a god over each nation. Each nation had their own god. They worshiped those gods. God starts over with his own nation. Now in Deuteronomy 32, Moses was indeed referencing Yahweh's separation of the nations according to Noah's offspring. Specifically, the physical separation that took place at the Tower of Babel. But it's important to note, as I said, that Israel's not listed in the index of 70 nations because they did not exist. But if you're reading the New American Standard, he said he divided them according to the number of the sons of Israel. That makes no sense at all. But see, this... Reading in Deuteronomy is corrected if you look at the Septuagint and if you look at the Dead Sea Scrolls. And see, as we've discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, we learned a lot of stuff and better translations. And here it's not the sons of Israel, it's the sons of God. Sons of Israel doesn't fit in this at all. They didn't, Israel didn't exist. Now, as I said, 
I think the watchers were jealous of Yahweh bringing man into the sacred space because they were His divine counsel. And I really believe that believers are the replacement of the divine counsel. We are God's counsel. We are called holy ones. And see, again, translations mess this up. Because if you're familiar with the, the Tanakh, you're reading the holy ones, the holy ones, and you know these are divine beings. And you get to the New Testament, it says, you're saints. Totally disconnects it from the old. Because what it really says is, you're holy ones. We're replacing them. So, they got him kicked out of sacred space. They got him kicked out of the garden. Then Yahweh told of his plan to redeem man by the seed of the woman. So the watchers sought to pollute the human race. They got to stop this. And the flood and the holy wars of Israel wiped out the hybrid race. All right, The Nephilim were taken care of. By the time of David, they had taken care of all this hybrid race. They wiped them out. It's finished. They're done. All right, Between that and the flood. So they're gone. No more Nephilim. So we don't have to deal with them anymore. We're dealing with the demons still in the New Testament. Their offspring, or they're the product of them after they die. So the God-man, Yeshua, now comes to provide redemption for His elect. Now, watch 1 Corinthians 2, 6-8. through Yet we do not speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. Wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they understood, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. Boy, that's a powerful statement, right? So who are these rulers? Is this the Jewish rulers? Most would say... Yeah, this is, re- this is Jewish rulers. And, and I know that's possible. But I think this is a reference to the watchers, the spiritual rulers, the anti-Yahweh forces. In a Greek translation of Daniel, a text that many scholars consider even older than the Septuagint, the prince of Persia and Israel's prince Michael are both described with the Greek word archon. And that's the term Paul uses here for ruler, archon. Paul says that they that had the rulers, the archon of this age, known what God's plan of redemption was, that Messiah must die to accomplish salvation, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. Because they wanted to thwart the plan. The wisdom and the rulers of that age were coming to nothing because the age was passing away. See, he's speaking of the spiritual archon, which was about to be judged, at the end of the Old Covenant system. these All these rulers are going to be judged. And they'd shortly have no realm to rule in because that age was about to end. And their rule is about to end. At the end of that 40-year transition period, we're done with those spirit beings. We're done with those other gods. They're done. At the cross, these spiritual beings were defeated through the cross and the resurrection. And at Pentecost... Right after this, and again, you go back to Psalm 82, the last verse, Arise, O God. At the resurrection, these gods are defeated, alright? And at that time, Yahweh begins to reclaim the nations that He put away for Himself. He always had intended to call them back when He called Abraham. He told Abraham, Through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So it was always God's plan to call them back. And now, at Pentecost, he begins to call them back. 
He had not abandoned them to the watchers forever. Look at Luke 10.1. Now after this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them into pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. Why did he send 70? The number of the nations was 70. And here he's sending, you know, out the 70. And Luke is, is planned. This He's talking about the reclaiming of the nations that God had disinherited at Babel. The number of disciples in Luke 10 was meant to match the number of nations to give you that symbolism. He's recalling them. 70 went out because 70 got put aside. Yeshua's inauguration of the kingdom meant that these 70 disinherited nations were being reclaimed. Sending out the 70 disciples expresses a theological message. Look at Luke 10. The 70 return with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Now, in conjunction with the successful mission of the 70, Yeshua declares the expulsion of Satan from God's presence. Satan is being defeated and the nations are being made part of the kingdom of God. And I believe that since AD 70, with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, that Satan, the watchers, the demons are all defeated foes. Their purpose was to stop the work of Christ in redeeming man. That's completed. There's no point in them. They can't do anything anymore. They're done. With the second coming, with the resurrection and judgment, that was it. He put them to an end. Now, let me just kind of reinforce this view here. We know that during the transition period, God gave spiritual gifts. All right? I went to church last week and the preacher was talking from Judges and he was talking about Deborah. And Deborah had the spiritual gift and he listed all her spiritual gifts. I'm like, how did she get those? Before they were even given in the New Covenant. Anyway, they had spiritual gifts. All right, the new, the, the Spirit, when the Spirit came at Pentecost, He brought gifts for the individuals. The purpose of these gifts was to move through the transition period, a difficult time, to get the church established. One of the gifts was to get the power. What was that gift for? Well, if you look at power through the New Testament, the gift of power was the gift to deal and defeat demons. The gifts all ended in AD 70. The gift is gone. Why is that gift gone now? We don't need it. We don't need it. Okay? There's no more demons, so we don't need that gift to deal with demons. Look at 1 Corinthians 12, 7. To each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For the building up of the church, God gave these gifts. He says, to another, the effective the effecting of miracles and to another prophecy, to another distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another interpretations of tongues. Now, the Greek word used here for miracles, dunamis, which means power or inherent ability. It's used of works of a supernatural origin and character. You know, what interests me today is people talk about spiritual gifts like they're all still here and everybody's got one and they give you a little test and tell you what your gift is. And most of you have the gift of helps, which means you have the spiritual ability to set up chairs. Really glad the Spirit empowers with that, because I don't know how these chairs would get set up, you know, by physical men, okay? I mean, it's, you know, it's just, I took the test, okay? It said I had to get the teaching, all right? And I thought, well, 
I gave it to an unsafe friend of mine who was a teacher. Just said, take this test. I want to see you come out. Guess what gift he had? Teaching. He's not even a Christian, but the test said he has the gift of teaching. Because that was his bent. You know, and I think we're all given abilities. You know, God created us to be individuals. And as individuals, we have certain bents, certain directions, certain abilities and talents. They're not spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are supernatural enablements. If I had the gift of teaching, I would never change my doctrine. Right? Because, I mean, if the Spirit is enabling me, the Spirit... Oh, wait a minute, I changed my mind. We're not Arminian anymore. Now we're Calvinists. I'm like, Spirit, didn't you know this to start with? We're no longer futurists. Now we're preterists. I'm like, well, didn't you know that? I mean, come on. Supernatural ability. That's what the gifts were. So if you got a gift, it's supernatural. Well, the gift of miracles was the supernatural ability to cast out demons. It's a gift of power over evil forces. Because during that transition period, the evil forces were going wild. Dunamis is the same word that it's translated power throughout the Gospels. Dunamis or power appears at the point in which Yeshua defeated Satan again and again. You see this word. Whenever Christ spoke the word, the demons were forced to obey Him. Look at Luke 4.36. And amazement came upon them all. And they began talking with one another saying, What is this message? For with authority and power, dunamis, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. They're, they're marveling like, this, the unclean spirits are, are listening to this man. They're obeying him. The apostles used this gift to defeat Satan by casting out demons. Look at Matthew 10.8. He tells them, apostles, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. The main thrust of the gift of miracles seems to be the casting out of demons. This gift was temporary, as all they were during that transition period. Once the Lord returns, the gifts died out. We don't have this gift today because we don't need this gift today. Satan, the demons, the lesser disobedient gods, they've all been destroyed. The battle is over, people. It's over. It ended in AD 70 when the Lord returned, completing redemption. Through His death, through His resurrection, through the second coming, He brought God's elect back to the garden where we started. God brought man in that garden to fellowship. He got kicked out. The whole rest of the Bible is about God working to bring man back into that garden with Him. Look at Revelation 21, 2 and 3. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. Alright, this is not literal people. I've seen people measure the, you know, it's this big and this big. Here's what it would look like on the globe. It's ridiculous, okay? This is a spiritual thing, alright? Made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. God lives with us. And He will dwell among them and they shall be His people and God Himself will be among them. That is the blessing of the new covenant that God now dwells with His people. We're back in Eden. It's a spiritual Eden. We don't have to go anywhere. God dwells in us. Listen, we're sacred space. We're the temple of God. God dwells here 24-7. That's the blessing of the new covenant. The demonic forces, they've been defeated. 
they couldn't accomplish what they tried. And we're back in fellowship with Yahweh. And listen, there's nothing anywhere that can hinder that. The damage that Satan and the watchers and the demons have caused has been repaired in Christ. We're back in the garden of God. We're back walking in fellowship with Yahweh. And when we die, the fellowship just continues on unhindered. You know, a lot of things hinder us right now from that fellowship. You ever been to a point and you stop and you said, I haven't talked to the Lord lately. Been busy with life. Well, you do life without Him, it's a sad life, okay? But that's us. But someday, when we leave this world, that's going to be unhindered. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning for Your Word. Lord, I simply ask that Your people would be Bereans. They would not buy what I'm selling. They would not reject what I'm talking about. They would study the Scriptures to see if it's so. Give us all, Lord, the heart of a Berean. May we dig, may we look, may we see if these things are so. Father, I thank You for the ability You've given us today with so many resources, so so many tools to help us understand the truths of God. Father, I pray that we would grasp and understand the significance of the fact that we are right now sacred space. We are the temple of God. You dwell in us. May we joy in that fellowship, Lord. Thank you. Amen.